0: So Janelle and I have this wonderful friend named Amanda. If if you've come to our church very long, you've often heard Janelle during the prayers of the people pray for Amanda. Amanda and Jason are missionaries in Ethiopia. Janelle and Amanda um, taught together in Texas before Jason and Amanda went to Ethiopia um, to be missionaries. So we knew Jason and Amanda before they had children, before we had children. And Amanda has the most curious wake-up routine that she's told us about. And here's how it goes. When she starts to stir, her husband promptly gets up and he fixes some coffee and brings her in bed coffee and the paper. Now, after about 30 minutes of this little experience, Amanda takes a nap. Every day for 20 or 15 or 20 minutes. Then she takes a shower, gets dressed, does all of that stuff. Meantime, Jason is preparing her lunch when when she was a school teacher, packing it in a bag, and cooking breakfast for her. Now, Normally it would sound like a preacher story, you know, one of those made-up stories for a point, but it's actually a true story. And and this is Amanda. It's like every day, rain or shine, when they visit us in England, this is her wake-up routine, and it takes like two and a half hours. And that's just (laughs) the way the princess rolls. Now... (laughs) Some of you might be like this. I don't know. Janelle is normally like this. You need to turn But others of us, our wake-up routine is not nearly so, so peaceful. You know, you've had those moments where off goes the alarm and you jump up in fright and you're dragged mercilessly to meet the cold, cruel light of a new day, right? And, and probably all of us have experienced kind of somewhere in between these extremes. The last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, in verse 5, Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. So last week, we began. A, I began a series of messages that are really about that short little statement. What does it mean to say that Jesus is making all things new? Last week, on Easter, when we looked at John's account of the resurrection... We saw that for John, when he looked at the resurrection, he saw that Jesus was doing not only something for the future, but he was doing something right now. That he was right now beginning the new creation. That the resurrection isn't just about where you go when you die. In fact, John never brings that up in his account of the resurrection. For John, the resurrection is that the gardener has returned He's taking the thorns and thistles out. He's restoring all things. And that begins right now. And so that's where we were last week. And this week, in the next several weeks, we're going to look at how the Bible has this really audacious agenda. It's this idea that God is really, right now, at work, fixing things. And that when he comes back, he'll finish that work. But right now, he's really up to something, that, that Christianity is not a pie-in-the-sky kind of religion, but it's a rough-and-dirty, down-in-the-trenches religion. And so we're going to look over the month ahead at how God is at work through us and through his spirit, working in our lives, renewing culture. What does it mean to say that God wants to go and be a part of what I do in my job? How is my job a part of the renewal of all things, whether I'm a school or or a restaurateur, or a lawyer? How does your work, what does it have to do with God making all things new? We're going to look at how God is renewing relationships in the church, but we're going to start this morning with a very kind of personal issue. What does it mean to say that God is renewing us as individuals, that God transforms you and me? The resurrection is not just about us, it's about the whole cosmos. But it is about us too. So how does a person experience the renewing work of God in their own life? Now this takes us back to Amanda and her very curious wake-up routine. It takes us also back to this interesting kind of dialogue between Nicodemus and questioning. And Jesus, where they're, at, where they're talking about... All, Nicodemus keeps making statements and it keeps saying Jesus answers him as if Nicodemus was asking a question. But when you read it, you're like, Jesus and Nick or on two different pages because Jesus seems to be answering questions that Nicodemus isn't even saying. But what Jesus is getting at is how a person like Nicodemus comes into the kingdom. How does a person come into God's new work? How does a person receive that in their own life? And a great way to think about that is waking up. In fact, in Romans, often, several times, when it's talking about becoming a Christian, it uses that metaphor. It says, wake up, O sleepers. Well, everybody wakes up in different ways and in different mornings, right? In different ways. And as you begin to think about this, I mean, think about those of you who have read the Bible very frequently or you're familiar with some of the stories. Think about Paul. Now, Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, he had a kind of classic alarm clock conversion,
1: <laughs> right? He's going
0: down the road, he's headed to Damascus, and he's in the mood to kill, right? He's about to murder, state sanctioned murder of some Christians, and on the way, an alarm clock rings and yanks him into the light, right? On the way, he's headed toward killing Christians, and what happens? The Bible gives this really weird story about this bright light and this loud voice, and it strikes him, and he converts. All of a sudden, he's yanked, kicking and screaming, into the kingdom of God. But then there are other people in the Bible who don't have alarm clock wake up, like Peter. When you try to trace Peter's conversion through the gospel, Peter, all of at one point he's saying, "You are the Son of the Living God," and the next point Jesus is saying to him. Wow, only God could have told you that. Good step, good move. You're coming in. And then the very next moment, the thing Jesus is saying is, Peter, you're listening to Satan. You don't have a clue what's going on. And then Peter has great faith. And then a little girl says, don't you follow Jesus? And Peter says, I don't even know who that is. And he cusses his little girl out. And when you trace Peter's journey, it lasted at least three years. He's more like Amanda. Waking up a little bit, going back to sleep. <laughs> Taking a step forward, getting really grouchy. But but one day, you look at Peter, and in the beginning of Acts, he stands up, and he's saying to the little girl and her father and all the people who had cowered him down, he's proclaiming the gospel. And he knows it, and he's got it, and it's changed him. And you know what? In this room, there are those two stories of conversion and every degree in between And so, when we talk about what does it mean to come into the kingdom of God, it's important to begin to think about, in the Bible, how do people come into the kingdom? Some people, like Paul, it's this radical, rude, sudden, cataclysmic experience, and for others, like Peter, it's stretched out over days, or weeks, or months, years, even decades. Now... Turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 2 and look at verse 36. This, I think, is one of the most helpful places in all of the Bible to kind of put conversion under a microscope. Now look, when you want to look at the innards of a fish under a microscope, more than likely you're going to kill the fish, right? It's going to lay dead on the table, it's going to sink of formaldehyde. So what I'm about to do is going to kill conversion. I'm going to break it apart into its little elements, and it, in some ways, it's abstract and it doesn't actually do justice to it. But it helps us wrap our minds around the basic components. But then at the end of that, I'm going to come back and try to put the fish back together and and say conversion is really this living, breathing thing. So Acts chapter two, verse thirty-six. Here's Peter. He has converted. He's just preached the sermon of his life. All right? And this is the conclusion of this sermon where Peter is preaching to the very people who murdered Jesus. And he's proclaiming to them the truth of the gospel with boldness and with courage. And he gets to the end, and let's pick up right at the very end, verse 36, and he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, talking about Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now that's a whole lot of courage Peter didn't have just a few days before. Now look at verse 37. Now when they, the people Peter was preaching to, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word and were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, as we're thinking about conversion, as you're trying to make sense and map out your own conversion, as you're trying to think through, am I a Christian? What does it mean to become a Christian? As you're trying to consider maybe becoming a Christian, it's important to kind of sink our teeth into this passage and notice that Conversion really involves a cluster of experiences. Um, a cluster of encounters between you and Jesus Christ. And i found that it's helpful to break these experiences, this cluster of events, this cluster of things that have to happen in order for you to be entirely converted. It's helpful to break it down into a seven elements. Now, again, to break a fish into seven elements, you have to slice him and dice him, okay? So I'm doing this just so that we can wrap our mind around it. These seven elements, I think when you look throughout scripture, you're going to find that these are the elements of conversion. Now, they're all interrelated and interdependent. It's kind of like uh, a spider's web, okay? Every one of them leans on the other and involves the other, and there's lots of overlap, but for the sake of discussion, we're going to take them apart. I'm going to go through these seven elements. First, I'll just list them. Then I'll come back and talk about them briefly, and then at the end, I'm going to come back and talk about how really every conversion is unique. So to begin with, these seven elements, seven core, non-negotiable, fundamental experiences a person must have in order to become a Christian. Number one, belief. Number two, repentance. And I'll go through these again if you're taking notes and I go too fast. Number three, trust. Number four, commitment. Number five, baptism. Number six, receiving God's spirit. And number seven, being incorporated into the church. Now I'm going to come back through each each of these, okay? Number one, belief. As we look at biblical accounts of conversion belief is essential. There are some basic threshold beliefs that you must have. If you don't, you have not converted to Christ. Now, at this point, for those of you who are very familiar with the Bible, I'm not talking about belief in John's terms, where John uses belief to mean a lot of things. It's a very thick word. I'm using it in a very thin and particular way. Look at the climax of, of Peter's sermon, Acts Acts 2.36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. This is when the crowds are cut to the heart and they ask what must we do. And Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. To be a Christian, to be entirely converted, you must believe certain things about Jesus. Look at chapter Acts chapter 9 verse 5. And Saul said, this is when Saul is the alarm clock of dream, Saul said, "Who are you, Lord?" And God said, "I am Jesus." Now, in fact, all of the gospel sermons recorded in scripture, this belief is at the center that Jesus is God. If you do not believe that, you're not yet converted. This is a non-negotiable belief. And we could look at other places where there's other parts of this belief. This not only must we believe that Jesus is God, but we must believe that we need salvation. And that Jesus in dying was doing something that was uniquely unique for our salvation. That in his death, he was dying for us to pay the penalty for our sins. And in his rising from the dead, God was establishing him, vindicating him as the world's true Lord. Now, that's basic Christian beliefs. There are a lot of other beliefs that build on that superstructure that are not what I'm talking about. But in order to be a Christian, you must believe Jesus is God. He died for you. He rose from the dead. And he alone is the only solution to the world's ultimate problem. Number two, repentance. Remember what Peter said to the crowd? Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Now, when a person is converting, whether it's an alarm clock conversion or a decades-long conversion, at some point, that person is overwhelmed by the fact that they are sinful. That, That they have rebelled against their creator. And at some point in a conversion process, there must be this personal, acute awareness of your complete inability to earn God's favor in your life. The repentance I'm talking about, it's deeper than just confessing that you've lied or that you get angry. The repentance I'm talking about, the kind of repentance that that opens the doors of the kingdom of God to a person, it goes deep down. It it goes all the way down to confessing all those things beside God that you trust in. And at confessing at the center of you, there's a throne in your heart and you put yourself on that throne time and time and time again. And in doing that, you've committed treason against the Creator. It means that we, when we come into the kingdom, we should not only repent for the things we've done wrong, but also for the motivations beneath all of our selfishness and all of our messes. So repentance involves remorse for my sins and confession of those sins to God and rejecting that way of living and hoping and finding our significance. So when a person does that, when a person rejects their whole way of living centered around themselves, what do they hope in? What do they trust in? Well, that's the third element. The third element of a genuine conversion is trust. A radical trust in God. A deep, deep trust. To trust the one who made you. To put your faith in him. To trust at the core of your being that every dark and dirty and dastardly deed you've ever committed, he knows full well and he forgives. To trust that deep inside of you to know that you are more wicked. There's a pastor named Tim Keller. He says it this way. To know that you are more wicked than you ever dared imagine. But at the very same moment, more love than you could ever conceive of by the one who knows all the dirt. And to trust that. To really, really Believe and trust that your sins are no longer held against you. Not because you've done something good, but because Jesus paid the price and removed that debt. This is what Peter means when he tells the crowd, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. In, in the name of what he is and what he's done. Why? For the forgiveness of your sins. Not just the world sins, but you have a personal problem. This is part of what the passage then read to us in, in Romans chapter four is getting at in verse 5, when Paul the author of it says, "And to the one who does work, who does not work, but trust him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. It's when you have this deep, deep in the core of your soul, Personal and intimate faith in God. That he forgives you. That he will save you. That he will raise you in the last day. This is the third element of a complete conversion. Number four, commitment. To transfer your allegiance to Christ. I'm talking about an act of surrender. A fundamental change of loyalty. From now on, Jesus is the ultimate and final authority. Again, listen to Peter's words. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. You know what it means to be baptized in the name of Jesus? It means you bend the knee and declare fealty to a new king. It's it's an oath of loyalty. Now, it could be meaningless, or it could not. And that's what's going on here. This transfer of loyalty, I think it's helpful to think of it in two two kind of ways. Number one, your moral life. To bend the knee to Jesus has a profound moral implication. It means that from now on, Jesus calls the shots morally. From now on, Jesus alone can determine what is right and wrong, what is good and what is bad, What is true and what is evil, what is moral and what is wicked. To bend the knee to Jesus, there has to be a shift of moral allegiance. Now, it's tricky in determining on some issues what is right and wrong. I'm not saying that it means you just kind of read the Bible without thinking and go around stoning people and doing whatever else comes into your your mind. But it means that you confess Jesus is the king of your life. A a second area that we shift our commitment in a conversion is in terms of the focus of your life. God and his kingdom, they move from a a compartment. Time after time, I see this in people's lives, as they're beginning to investigate Christianity, they get excited about Christianity, but slowly and surely, Jesus moves from a peripheral concern, from a Sunday kind of go-to-church, I think about these issues, Jesus begins to shift deep into the center of the person's life from a compartment to the center of every compartment. To make a commitment to Jesus as the Lord of your life means he not only calls the shots morally, but it means he is the focus of your life. So Jesus one time said, seek first the kingdom of God in all of his righteousness. It means make that the ultimate center of your life. God and his kingdom become the passionate, consuming blaze of who you are. Number five, baptism. Again, listen to Peter's sermon. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now look, This we come from lots of different places. All right, we, There's Mennonite backgrounds here, there's Baptist backgrounds, Catholic, Lutheran, <clears throat> Episcopalian, and for some of you, this is really difficult, and for some of you, this is really easy. And I'm not trying to wipe that out but in scripture, only one person gets away without being baptized who comes into the kingdom. It's the thief on the cross. So, if you want the option of not being baptized, there's the route.
1: <laughs>
0: now, what, what I'm getting at is that that's not an escape clause. Now, exactly how it is and what it does, I'm not going to take the time to go into it this morning. There's lots of unanswered questions that I'm not even, I can't go down the trail because... it It really needs a a whole sermon for us to talk about this. But what I want us to do is just be honest that in the Bible, this is a non-negotiable. This is part of what it means. Now look, part of what I'm doing is I'm defining conversion as our response to God's saving work. So these are the ways we respond. We respond by believing. God works in our life, and we respond by confessing, by repenting, by bending the knee, by being baptized. These are our responses to God's really mysterious work in our life, and baptism is one of those. Number six, receiving the Holy Spirit. Look Again, look at Peter's words, Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Clearly, for Peter, receiving the Holy Spirit is part of conversion. Because in his biggest sermon, the one shot he has to speak to the people that murdered Christ, who he backed down to before, he talks about all of these elements I'm going through. He talks about belief, and trust, and repentance, and he talks about baptism, and he talks about loyalty, and he talks about receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, Some of us come from traditions where we can share the gospel and never mention that. Why is that? Why is that? We must receive the gift of God's spirit to be entirely converted. One more element. Incorporation into the Christian community. Now this is all over scripture, but again, let's stick to Peter's sermon. Verse 41. So those who received this word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Now that is clear and unambiguous to Peter's audience. That what he's saying there is that they were incorporated into the life of a local church. This is so important in the New Testament that one of the fathers of the Christian faith said we have God for our father and the church for our mother. And what he's getting at is that apart from the church, there is no conversion. Now again, there's lots of details to work out on that, but this cuts right to the heart of American idolatry with our radical individualism and radical autonomy. And Peter doesn't leave it out any more than he leaves out repentance, any more than he leaves out belief, these other things being a part of a church doesn't stand alone, just like being baptized doesn't stand alone. Just like believing doesn't stand alone. Remember, I started out. These are all interdependent. Remember I said to cut them up was a bit artificial, right? There's much more overlap than I'm giving justice to. But sometimes, it helps us to put a fish under a microscope. Now, these are the seven elements that we see in Acts 2 throughout Scripture. Belief, Repentance, trust, commitment, baptism, receiving the spirit, and incorporation into the church. But here's, here's an important caveat. Do not think of them as steps on a the ladder. They are not steps. You don't complete one and move on to the other. It's, it's never that clean and neat. It, it, it just isn't. The order of these elements, the way in which they occur, the pace at which they unfold, it's always different. Every conversion is like a fingerprint. It, it happens in different orders. We make steps forward here, and then we make, that's why Jesus never shares the gospel the same way twice in, in, in the Bible. Every time he's talking to some people about somebody about how to enter the kingdom, he's talking in different ways and in different angles because he knows that he's seeing a person in front of him, not a stereotype. A person who's coming into the kingdom in a unique way. And like fingerprints, there are things that are always part of fingerprints, but the way they flesh themselves out is different and unique. Entering God's kingdom is a very personal thing. Not personal in the terms of private, but personal in the the idea that it's unique. And it's not simply a decision about, will I join a church? It's not simply a decision about, do I believe Jesus is really God, that he died. Genuine conversion, an entire conversion. It's it's like the tornadoes in in, in Alabama. It absolutely rearranges the landscape of your life. It reshapes and, and shakes up your intellect and your will and your heart. Deep down, your very soul is transformed by this series of encounters with Jesus. That's why we've got to put this fish back together. In fact, each of these seven elements is a form of commitment. And for some of us, the belief, believing that Jesus was God, is a commitment that daunts us. It's like Mount Everest. I've got friends, I know people, I've sat with guys on planes for whom that Mount Everest is looming and they are not mountain climbers. Mm-hmm. But for others of you like me, believing in Jesus is no Mount Everest. I don't ever remember a time I did not That came really easy to me. In fact, it snuck up on me before I could even conceive of any option. Mm-hmm. From the time I was a child. But there are other parts of this that are my own Mount Everest. In my own journey of conversion. Each of these seven <coughs> elements, I think it's helpful to think of them as a form of commitment that stands on a sliding scale. In other words, at one point, it may be impossible for you to believe that Jesus is God. But as things develop, you find that there are these flickering moments where you believe it. And then you back off from it. And it it gets hard for you to believe. And, And these moments of flickering belief, they're really flickering flames against the backdrop of doubt and skepticism. That's the larger... Kind of issues going on in your life, and then one day you discover that you're inclined toward believing the whole thing, and your skepticism is the flickering kind of foreground. See, it's a sliding scale, and that might be with repentance or commitment. This, the way this is what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus. He kept trying to understand it and Jesus said, look, the wind, the spirit, the wind blows where it may. You can't understand this stuff. How this happens is beyond your ability. For some of you, maybe you wish Christianity was true and you struggle and have agony over your doubts. But belief and unbelief, (coughs) it's so important to know this in the environment of today's New atheism. Belief and unbelief are on a scale. They are not all-or-nothing concepts. You're not either entirely an atheist, completely unconvinced, no belief in your life. I mean, it's a scale. And at various points in your life, you're moving up and down the scale. It's not like a one and a zero in computer programming. All of us, we have a unique journey of faith with subtle and important textures. But don't get me wrong. There is such a thing as being asleep. And there is such a thing as being awake. That's part of the reason for this message. Because it is critical that you are awake by the time you have to get up and be ready. Because if you're not, you're in trouble. This is what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus. Truly, truly, which means underline this in your Bibles, get a big fat highlighter, mark, this is... I always speak truth, but this is truly, truly kind of stuff. This is stuff you don't want to uh, overlook. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus is saying it is possible to wake up all the way. It is possible to be ready. It is possible to totally convert. And he says then, again in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, this is so important, Nicodemus. If you're not careful, you're going to miss it. You will not enter the kingdom. And you don't want to be outside of the kingdom when this whole thing is over. You don't want to be outside of God's life, God's goodness. Teenagers, listen. A big part of what's going on in your life, spiritually, is that you're waking up. And it's really important that that you come to grips with where you are in these kinds of issues, and, and and just trust God, children. Just trust God that He will bring you into His kingdom. See this, and parents, this is so helpful because as I try to interact with my children. My job is not to give them some canned presentation of the gospel, slam dunk them in a pool of water, and tell them, congratulations, they're in. My job is to be like Jesus, to never share the gospel twice in the same way. Why? Because I'm listening to the Spirit. Where is the Spirit at work in this person's life? That's why to one person, Jesus pushes on them to repent, and to another person to believe, and to another person to declare their loyalty. My job, when I'm sharing the gospel with a friend, with a a neighbor is to listen so that I can know where is God working in their life and to push on them there and encourage them there. Where are you? All of us. Parents, children, teenagers. The Bible says work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Where are you in the journey? Have you converted? I'm convinced there's a lot of people in churches who were baptized when they were little. And they were told, you're converted. And they have not converted. They're in the process of converting. But because they were told they were done, they've aborted their conversion. And we meet them as adults. And they are not filled with the Spirit. They have not meant the need to loyalty to Christ, but their name is on a roll somewhere. And this is because we have stopped recognizing the mystery and the complexity of an entire conversion. And it is possible to be entirely converted. But your job for yourself and for those you interact with is to be honest with God. Where I, am I in this journey? So for me, here's my journey. My grandfather's a preacher. My father's a preacher. My brother, my uncle, I've told you guys this. I, I come from a family of preachers. I grew up in this incredible house. Leave it to Beaver. I mean, it, unbelievable. My parents loved God and it when I was three years old in a Baptist church, I began to ask my parents to tell me how to be saved. So my parents prayed with me something called the sinner's prayer, which happens a lot in evangelical churches, where I pray and confess that I believe in Jesus and ask him to come into my heart and forgive me of my sins. Now they waited until I was seven to baptize me, because Baptists don't believe in infant baptism, and three is a quasi-stage, and that's just a little scary. So I was baptized at seven. And I loved God. And I told my friends about God. And I would invite them to be baptized in the in in bathtub in our house.
1: <laughs> and, I sh-
0: and I brought lots of friends to church. And when I became a teenager, I continued on my merry little way, telling people about God and his kingdom and inviting them to church to be saved, to pray his prayer. And when I was a sophomore and a junior in high school, I unbent my knee, and I stopped yielding to Christ. And I loved myself more than Christ, and I lived for myself. And at the end of my junior year, God shattered me over the wickedness in my life. And I yielded to Christ in a far more profound way than I had as a child. As a child, it was profound for a child, but I'd never grown into that. I'd never yielded as an adolescent and adult. Now, as a Baptist, I didn't know what to do with that. I didn't know, am I saved or not? If I'm saved, could I have committed all these sins? What's going on? God, do I need to get saved again? Do I need to get baptized again? So I prayed, Lord, help me straighten this out. And in a Baptist, my language for what happened to me that summer was I rededicated my life to Christ. Now, I had Assembly of God friends who, like, you know what their language was? I was filled with the Spirit. My life fundamentally changed and I have not been the same since. Something, the tectonic plates of my life at two weeks after my junior year shifted and the geography of my life has been changed. And it has not changed back. Now, I'm not saying I, I don't sin. Sometimes I still do. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: that was what, 17, 16, I don't know, how old you are. I become a minister at like 19 or 18, 18, when I'm 21 years old, all of a sudden I realized that I had not let God forgive me for the wickedness of my sophomore, junior year. I knew in my guts, I had not received his forgiveness because one day I'm praying and all of a sudden I'm like, I can't even mention to you, God, the things I did. And over a two-week period, I had an agonizing, dark night of the soul, where I knew that I needed to say to God, forgive me, but I couldn't bring myself to do it because I felt like that those words don't do justice to what I've done. So for two weeks, I'm just laboring in my prayer life with God. Please, God, what's going on with me? I'm, all, I'm already a pastor. I'm a professional holy man. I'm paid to be good, you know, already. <laughs> And after several weeks, suddenly God gives me the grace, and like a beggar, I reach my hands out and ask his forgiveness, and I receive it. And I believe that at that moment, I completed the type of conversion process I'm describing. It was the last mountain for me. So I think, you know, God will show me even better when I get but with some distance and perspective, it appears to me that God, that I was responding to God's saving work in my life in these kinds of ways from three up to twenty one. Where are you? Now, I'm not saying I'm perfect. No, I've got to continue to grow in every one of these ways. Right. We call it sanctification. I've got to continue to grow. But where are you? I, I recently read about a woman who prayed over and over. God, help me find you. But it got nowhere finally a Christian friend suggested she might change her prayer. God, come and find me. After all, you're the good shepherd who goes looking for the lost sheep. And then a woman wrote, the only reason I can tell you this story is that he did. Now what I'm saying is that coming to faith is entirely dependent on God. All of that work in my life was not me earning it. It was me responding to God's deep and mysterious and powerful work in my life. Once you begin to grasp your alienation from God and your own brokenness, you, you understand there can be no journey to God apart from God's help. But look at it on the flip side. If you're on the journey, that in and of itself is evidence that God is working in your life. Don't freak out. Don't get scared. Oh no, I might have an accidental death. Remember, accidental deaths are only from human perspective. God is never caught off guard by a death. He didn't like get shocked that it happened. Oh no, I I wasn't finished with this person. (laughs) So don't worry about God's work. You worry about your work. The question for every one of us is, am I responding to God where God is working in my life? Or am I being obstinate? Am I refusing to give in? Am I stopping from responding to this work of God? This is what Jesus said to Peter when Peter confessed that Jesus was actually God. In Matthew 16, Peter said, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So don't stress out. Relax. Be patient. Not a lazy patient. Trust in God to lead you to chase down your doubts. If you've got some confusion now, then it might be that you needed to be confused because you might have had a false sense of confidence. And if that's true, then I encourage you to talk with someone. Email me, call me, let's have coffee. Because coming into the kingdom is personal, but it is not private. The manuscript for the sermon notes, word by word, they're going to be on the website uh, tomorrow. Um, the, The sermon hopefully will be on the website Parents, as you're praying for your children, pray for discernment so you can work with them where they are at an age-appropriate level. Teenagers, as you're trying to figure out if you're a Christian or not, write these seven things down and ask God to show you where you need to yield. to you Him. Know? Because unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom. There's a lot at stake let's pray you'll bow your heads and close your eyes I encourage you to take just a moment to talk to God in the quietness of your own heart and ask him to help you as you share the gospel with others or to help you as you struggle with your own conversion maybe you're not entirely converted this can be scary scary stuff So just take a moment and talk to God.
1: He will hear your voice if you pray with your heart.